Leviticus uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. And children can be dismissed to children's church at this time. (laughs) The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Now, let me stop right there and say something. Uh, The two sons of Aaron were his first two sons. They had just been commissioned and installed as priests, as sons of Aaron. And contrary to the instructions of God, they had taken the censers and offered fire and incense before the Lord in a manner that they had not been commanded to do nor instructed to do. And immediately God struck them dead. On the very day that they're commissioned to to act as priests, mediators between God and man, they violated their calling. Now the importance of this is to recognize the context of worship. Worship in the context of people being sinful and God being holy. That's the context we're coming into, and that's why Moses is very careful to include the quick and sudden death of two of Aaron's sons when they violate the holiness of God by choosing to worship God according to their own imaginations as opposed to the specific way in which God has commanded that he is to be worshipped. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. This is not the full garb of the high priest in all of its glory. This is in fact simply the undergarment which is in contrast designed to be especially humble because on this day the people of Israel are supposed to especially humble themselves. Aaron here, as the high priest, is identifying with the people of God as much as he is identifying with Christ who is the mediator. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Just to let you know that these animals are only 18 months old. So when it says a bull, it's talking about a young bull calf. In the spring of the year, that's when calving took place. That's when lambs were born to goats and sheep. That's when cows gave birth to young bulls and young calves. This is in the fall of the year, 18 months 
after the birthing has taken place. So we have at least a minimum requirement of a one-year-old animal to be sacrificed, and this is just simply six months later. It's not like wrestling a big bull to bring it into the offering plate. I just want you to know that. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now let me explain Azazel. It's an untranslated word. There's four different possibilities for what it means. Uh, The last possibility is that it's the name of a demon. Uh, The problem with that is that our atonement has nothing to do with demons receiving things, per se. Uh, It's untranslated, but it can also mean, according to the Hebrew and according to the rabbinic tradition, a place of desolation, a place that's far away. So I take it from the standpoint that this is a destination point that's being spoken of here. That seems to be the strongest and best tradition biblically. But even if you thought it was a word for a demon, the best understanding there is, where do our sins ultimately go? Cast away from God, cast into hell, the realm of the demonic. So, in any way, demons have nothing to do with saving us. (laughs) All right? That's the important point here. Verse 9. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering... But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel, the place of desolation. Now, in verses 11 through 14, we have Aaron as the high priest presenting the sin offering of the bull on his own behalf and on the behalf of his household, which testifies to the fact that the high priest himself needed atoning for his sins that he had committed. We come to verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. The glory of God is over the mercy seat between the cherubim. Aaron cannot look upon the glory of God lest he die. And so this this ritual with the censer and the incense is to create a cloud of smoke that veils the glory so that Aaron will not perish and die in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. Verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, verses 15 through 19 are going to explain what he does with the first goat. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood, as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place 
because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. By the way, just a Hebrew note here, the word assembly there, when it's translated by the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word ecclesia, ecclesia. Just to give you a hint that when our older commentators refer to the church of Israel, the church in the Old Testament, they're doing so based upon the Septuagint translation. Again and again and again, the Old Testament people or God were called the ecclesia of God. Verse 18. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Now verses 20 to 22 is going to describe what Aaron does with the second goat. So verse 20. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Verses 23 to 28, we have an elaborate kind of wrap-up of this. And then I want to come down to verse uh, 29 to 34, which is a final summary, where we're told what all of this means. Verse 29, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of that month, you shall afflict yourselves, and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these words this morning, uh, coming from a time uh, thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, coming from a culture and a practice uh, very remote from how we serve you and live for you this day, help us nevertheless to understand this is your word. And your word was given Uh, to prepare your people ultimately for the seed of the woman, even the Messiah, even your son, the Lord Jesus. So help us to see how this passage uh, preaches to us 
of those great truths that we need to understand in order for us as sinful human beings to be reconciled and saved by a holy, holy, holy God. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to begin by recognizing that what Leviticus 16 is all about is that perhaps you have heard of the famous Jewish holy day, Yom Kippur. Uh, It's a day that occurs uh, in the autumn, in the fall of the year. Uh, Essentially, according to the Jewish calendar, it is six months after Passover. Uh, And we know how significant Passover is. God basically established Passover and said, this is when you're going to start dating your new year. Uh, And so counting all of your years from the time of the very first Passover time, that first month. Uh, But then we have in the fall, uh, at this time of the year, in the seventh month, on the tenth day, this particular day, which is outstanding as the most significant day in all of the ritual uh, and ceremony that God commanded Moses to set up with respect to how the people of God were supposed to worship God. The significance here is that all of the sacrificial system find its climax, culmination, everything points to what takes place on this particular day. All of the other sacrifices were essentially done when people would would sin and they would bring a sacrifice on their own personal behalf or maybe on behalf of their household. This particular day applies to all of Israel. It applies to the tabernacle. It applies to the priesthood. It applies to all of the people in order to make a once a year complete and final atonement for all of their previous sins of that year. Very, very significant. This passage uh, is ultimately going to preach Christ to us. Now, what we need to see out of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, what we need to see about how central this was to the life of Israel is how God was teaching his people about the nature of atonement. It's how a holy God must address the problem of sin so that God is able to restore that which was lost in Eden. Now think about this. We've got to begin by looking at what was lost in Eden and the consequences of that. Uh, I'm going to call that the road to perdition. Then we need to see what happens at the time of the Exodus when God establishes this complex worship system, which is really the beginning of the road back to Eden. And then finally, how this complex system of sacrifice uh, is described in the New Testament as fulfilled finally, fully, ultimately in the person of Christ, the road of salvation. So the road to perdition, uh, the road back to Eden, and the road of salvation. Three simple ways of understanding this this morning. Now, I want us to recognize that um, what happens in Eden determines everything else that happens in the Bible. What happens in in Genesis chapter 3 is the beginning and the prologue for everything else. Just as an aside, people who are skeptical about Genesis chapter 3 or the early chapters of Genesis 
I would just have to say you've lost the Bible. Because none of the rest of the story of the Bible makes any sense unless we were first created in, in fellowship with God, created to be perfect with God, created to walk with God in holiness and righteousness, created to be like God as image bearers, created to obey Him, created to love Him, created to live with Him and serve with Him. If, if that were not the original case of the human race, then, then what is the nature of what we are now? If we have always been this way, then we're not broken. <laughs> We've always been this way. The Bible says we started out in a relationship with God that was right, that was perfect, that was good. But then we sinned, we fell, we broke that relationship with God, and that's why the whole world is broken. That's why there's all the trouble that there is in the world. That's why we need Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 to explain to us why this world is such a mess. But furthermore, to point to the fact that God made promises in Genesis chapter 3, promises that that which is now terribly, terribly broken is going to one day be finally and fully restored because God has promised that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, that seed of the woman, ultimately Jesus Christ, that serpent, even a symbol for Satan himself and all the evil that has come into God's universe. There's going to be an ultimate triumph by God over all the forces of evil. But what happens in Eden? Adam and Eve, when they sin, they fall under the reality of a holy God and evil. Habakkuk says that God is of purer eyes than to look upon sin, that evil cannot dwell with him. They had to be expelled from the garden because the garden was, in fact, God's dwelling place. It was necessary that they be expelled and away from the presence of the Lord. They could not live with him in that condition. Now, that brings us then to understand what the Bible says about all of humanity. I think of uh, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That reminds us then of Romans 3.23. For all have sinned, and therefore they fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 what happens with sin? Well, the wages of sin is death. One of the best descriptions of perdition, living perdition right now, the road to perdition, is Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, the first three verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now notice, dead and alive. The walking dead. Spiritually dead, but physically alive. Physically alive, but out of a relationship with God, which God says, this is death. It's spiritual death. When you have no relationship with God, you are dead. Whether you're physically gone or physically here, you are dead, according to Scripture. Dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the serpent, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's the present condition of the world. 
for all those who do not have a saving relationship with Christ. On the road to a final perdition. Now, when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, though, we recognize that God was at work. Uh, Adam and Eve could have perished right then on that day. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, the Hebrew there isn't as literal as you think it is. It didn't mean they died physically that moment. But the word means in that day, that is in the period of time that you do this, dying, you shall die. So it really points to a process of death, not an instantaneous death. The first part of that process of death happens to be what? Separation from God. They spiritually died then. How do we know that? Because of the shame. They knew that they were naked. They knew they couldn't be in the presence of the God, God as they were. God's holy. Now they knew they weren't. But of course then they do begin to die. It takes a long time for Adam and Eve. It doesn't take as long for us. But death was given as a penalty for their sin. The wages of sin is death. But God was at work. So he makes the promise of the seed of the woman. And in light of that promise, he provides a way in which those who are favored by God, those who experience his grace, can begin the way back toward Eden. Now, what we see from the time of Eden to the time of Exodus, without it being explained explicitly, but what we see again and again is the way back is the way of sacrifice, the way of blood sacrifice. Uh, the problem of sin requires death. And so the way back is going to be a sacrificial death. You see this, first of all, with Adam and Eve. How did God clothe them? With skins of animals. He didn't create skins of animals without killing animals. That's the implication. He clothed them out of animals who died so they could be clothed. The shedding of blood, death on their behalf. And then we see how Abel worshipped God. He brought the first fruits of the flock. And the bringing of the first fruits of the flock was to offer a blood sacrifice unto God. We see this in the time of Noah. Noah was instructed to take all two of every kind of animal, but the, un, the clean animals, which, of course, the Hebrews would understand, oh, those are the sacrificial animals. He was to take seven pairs of all of them so that there would be sacrificial animals for Noah to use. Why? Because necessary to sacrifice animals in order to worship God. There's a penalty for sin. The penalty is death. Blood must be shed. Then we come to the time of Abraham, and we recognize that even when God cuts his covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, uh, there are animals who are actually sacrificed under that process. And then preeminently in the time of Abraham, we have what happens with Isaac. Um, God tells Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, on Mount Moriah, which we know almost 2,000 years later, Mount Moriah is the mountain of Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was crucified. And what does God do? As Abraham raises his hand, ready to obey God, God says, stop, and supplies a ram to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. In order to worship God, there must be a blood 
sacrifice. And with Isaac, it's clear, the blood sacrifice is the substitute for the death that God could require of us because the wages of sin is death. Now, we we see this pattern all through the Old Testament, all the way through the book of Genesis, coming up to the time of Exodus. Now, what is this basically saying to us? The people of God knew and understood that this is how God must be worshipped. They understood that God is a holy God. They understood that sin has to be reckoned with. Sin is a problem. God doesn't dwell with those who are evil. God doesn't dwell where sin is in his sight. God is a holy, holy, holy God. So how can anyone hope to find his or her way back to Eden? How can anyone hope to find fellowship with God when each and every one of us recognize we are sinful human beings? Well, that's why God gave the provision of sacrifice so that they might begin to understand that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, the road from Exodus on. What is God doing there? Well, God does something very significant, because though man can't on his own come back to Eden, God chooses to not just come down and visit with these Old Testament believers, but to actually dwell with them. God's goal is to actually dwell with his people once again. In the Abrahamic covenant, some 600 years before Exodus, God had said, I will be a God to you and to your children. I make that covenant with you, I'll be a God to you and to your children after you. But at the time of the Exodus... God expands that promise, that covenant promise, to take in a further dimension. In Exodus 25, verse 8, God has taken a significant step in terms of the restoration of Eden. He says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 29, 45, 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Leviticus, a third time he makes this claim. Uh, 26, 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Now notice, God is saying, my attitude is going to change. I'm going to do something about your sin. I'm going to find myself able to live with you, to dwell with you, and I will walk among you and, you and be your God and you shall be my people. Now, what's this pointing out, as the book of Leviticus does and as the, the Old Testament uh, worship system does under Moses, is that sin is the problem. And the consequences of sin is death. And God has established this such that God cannot just willy-nilly come and be with those who are unholy because he's the holy, holy, holy God. So to make it possible for God on high to come down 
to dwell with his people, there must be a way to address the issue of our sin. And that's why God established the system of the tabernacle. God designed this way to be the way for sinful human beings to experience atonement. Atonement for their sin, atonement for their guilt, and to find reconciliation with God so that God could dwell with them. Now, we know there are three main parts to that system. The tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. The tabernacle was the house of God. The tabernacle uh, symbolized the presence of God with his people. Uh, The priesthood, we know that was the mediation, that there must be a mediator between God and man, and that's why God established the, the priest of the sons of Aaron. And then the sacrifices. The sacrifices here are going to represent how the penalty is going to be paid by the substitute of a sacrifice where the blood is going to be shed to provide uh, expiation for guilt and propitiation for the wrath of God. All of those elements are there in this tabernacle system. But let's talk about the fact that this system, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is of types and shadows. It's a symbolic system. Now, I didn't quite understand this as a young Christian. What is God doing here with all of these symbols? Because I think when we're very, very young, uh, we can find symbols to be very, very confusing. But there's another way to look at all of these symbols. And it has to do with an understanding of how we can define things and give things meaning. Uh, When we're training children, we don't begin with verbal definitions. We begin with what's called ostensive definitions. We define things by example. If we want our children to understand what a chair is, we point to a chair and we say chair. And if we want them to understand a table, we point to a table and we say table. We do this instinctively as parents. Children pick up on it instinctively as those that God has designed to be language learners. But the first form of language learning is consistently in the form of ostensive definitions. You point to something. You don't have to explain it. You point to it. And they get it. Now, think about this Old Testament system of symbols as being the way in which God taught his, the children of Israel. The New Testament describes them as those under age. Imagine that this whole system of symbols was a system of ostensive training, ostensive teaching, ostensive definition. How do you show that an invisible God lives with you? Well, he comes in a cloud that's visible, though the cloud isn't God. He's there in a pillar by fire, a fire by night, but he isn't the fire. But that symbolizes the presence of God. And then they build a tabernacle. And they say, this is the house of God. And the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud come down and actually overflow that tabernacle. That is showing them, by example, God is present here with us. How does God defend the fact that he's so holy you can't worship him except by the way he tells you to? Well, first two sons of Aaron were examples of why you can't do that. Uh, Visible examples. Uh, You try to worship God wrongly, you die. They did, they died. 
big, vivid example. Uh, you can't approach God uh, on your own. You need a mediator. So there's the priesthood. And you can't get into the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies, uh, only the high priest can. And the high priest can't go anytime he wants to. He can only go once a year. All of these ways God was showing by these examples, ostensibly defining for them, the approach to God who is holy must be exactly like he says, and it must be through the mediation that he has provided and ultimately then with the sacrifice. So the sacrifices become the key part of how to address the problem with sin. Now, what happens in Leviticus 16 is a very special form of sacrifice, but the background happens to be the first few chapters of Leviticus where sacrifices and how they are performed are laid out. So that's what I want to remind you of to begin with. Um, The first part of Leviticus talks about by showing, not describing, but by showing the penalty for sin is death. Not the death of the sinner, but the death of the sacrifice that he brings as a substitute. Now, the substitute symbolizes his death. He had to bring a perfect sacrifice, something unblemished, to represent that you, you, in order to have something pay for your sin, it must be something that isn't sinful or defiled itself. The only proper payment for your sin is something that symbolically has no sin attached to it at all. There's got to be moral perfection here in terms of what's going to substitute for you. And the worshiper then would bring that sacrificial animal, a one-year-old animal, to the tabernacle, to the priest, He would transfer his sin to that animal symbolically by putting his hand upon the animal's head and confessing his sin or sins, and then he would slay the animal. The priest then would take the blood and sprinkle the blood on the altar. But the idea was that this sinful human being would be petitioning God to identify his sin with the animal. And God would be pleased through this system to transfer his sin symbolically to the animal. And the animal would die in his place. The animal would be the sacrifice, the shedding of blood that would atone for the sinful human being. And then, as a result of that, the animals then would be either fully eaten or fully burned in order to demonstrate that all of the sin has been expiated. All of the sin has been consumed by this process. The sin is no more. On the Day of Atonement, two goats. Two goats are the center of what God is doing here. In order to more fully display the fullness of what happens in terms of the ritual of sacrifice. Uh, the first goat, actually both goats, are going to act as substitutes for the entire nation. That's their purpose. 
The first goat is chosen by Lot to be, in some sense, belong to the Lord, but it's going to be offered up and slain for all the sins of the people. So the first goat represents that the penalty for sin is death. There has to be the shedding of blood. Blood must be shed. Death must take place. But the death here is a substitute for all the people of God. Then the high priest will take and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat covers the ark. Inside the ark are the tablets of stone, the second edition of the tablets of stone, because the first stones Moses shattered as a symbolic reaction to the fact that Aaron and the people of God had created the golden calf and had fallen away from God so quickly. They had broken God's law, so Moses breaks God's law symbolically to represent that. Now we have the second edition of the law placed inside the ark to show God's law remains even when we break it. But over that law that's been broken is the mercy seat. The mercy seat, which represents propitiation. Propitiation is the covering of our sin in such a way that the wrath of God is removed. And so the blood is sprinkled upon the mercy seat when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. Now, what that means is the penalty for sin has been inflicted. The animal substituting for the people of God has died. Where the covenant has been violated, that violation has now been covered by the mercy seat of God. And so the first goat represents that the means of the atonement is by way of a substitute who bears the penalty for the sin in terms of death. Now the second goat is going to represent the effects of the atonement, the effects of what atonement does. So the high priest brings forward this goat, which is going to be released into the wilderness alive. Uh, This goat does not go into the Holy of Holies. Now what the high priest does at this point is he lays both of his hands, not just one hand, but both of his hands upon the head of the goat. And the sins that he confesses are, according to what it says in Leviticus, uh, the sins of rebellion and wickedness and the sins of all the people. We we can imagine that uh, Aaron and then all the high priests who were faithful afterwards would have had quite a catalog of sins to present on that day. We we can't imagine that this was a uh, 15-second prayer as the high priest is confessing the sins of the people of God from the past 365 days as he holds the head of the goat. And we are told that the sins are transferred from the people of God through the mediator, the high priest, onto that animal, sacrificial animal. But then what happens to that animal? This goat bearing the sins of the people of Israel, is now taken out of the camp and sent away into the wilderness, never to come back into the presence of the people of God. It is sent away. 
And what that symbolizes is a full and complete removal of sin. Now, did the Old Testament saints understand that? Did they get the picture? Well, listen to what David says in Psalm 103, verse 12, where he talks about the mercies of God. And then he says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? It's a figure of speech in the Old Testament. It's called a mirism. M-E-R-I-S-M. Mirism. What is a mirism? A mirism is a way of taking two concepts that are polar opposites in order to speak of comprehensiveness, night and day, good and bad, east and west, top to bottom, comprehensiveness in every way. Since the ancient Hebrew did not have an abstract concept of infinity, they couldn't say God has removed our sins from us infinitely away. But they could say, as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our transgressions from us. That's what the second goat represented that God would take the sins of his people and move them completely away, that they would bear those sins no more. Micah understood this. Micah 7, 18, 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us he will tread your iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. The Israelites knew that anything cast into the very bottom of the sea was never going to be recoverable again. Totally done away with, totally gone. Now, that leads us then finally, the way of salvation. The road to salvation. The fulfillment that Jesus brings to the day of atonement. Now, that's the message in the book of Hebrews. Now, the message in the book of Hebrews uh, grabs hold of the system of worship under the tabernacle and the priesthood and sacrifices and makes a number of references that are clearly references to the Day of Atonement and the place of Jesus in the Holy of Holies. Uh, in essence, saying to us that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all that was symbolized on the Day of Atonement has fully and finally and completely taken place. So, when the high priest entered the tabernacle to present these offerings, it was prefiguring what Jesus Christ himself would come and do in his earthly, priestly, and sacrificial ministry. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11, 12, and 13. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, reference to the tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal salvation. Down to verse 24 to 26. For Christ has entered 
not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, meaning once for all time, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now here is the great truth. Jesus is the final fulfillment of everything symbolized on the Day of Atonement. He's the fulfillment of Yom Kippur. Here is the great temptation. Not to believe it. Not to believe it. The great temptation is to somehow not believe that God has fully, finally, completely removed your sin. It's a difficult thing It's a difficult thing to hold on to the greatness of the grace of God and all that God has done for you in Christ. Because you sin. Because we sin. Because we're so fallible. Because we're so weak. Because we're so ill-disciplined. Because we don't do each day the things we ought to do to stay in a good fellowship with God. We don't walk with Jesus as we should. We don't abide in Him as we should. We don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's hard to believe that we are so truly free from the penalty of sin. It's hard to go through life without a creeping sense of guiltiness overcoming us and capturing our hearts and souls in such a way that we feel that God could not look upon us with his great love. This is why you need to understand the Day of Atonement. This is why you need to see that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was the ultimate Day of Atonement. This is why you need to see that all it has required of us is to trust in what God has done, to believe in what God has done for us in the person of His Son, to truly believe that God has addressed the problem of sin so that he might come to dwell with us. And so he has said in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might dare even to die. God demonstrates his love for us And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And this is where I want to call your attention to the second stanza of a song that we're not going to sing before the throne of God above. And if you want to open it up, you don't have to read it out loud with me, but I want to read this stanza in conclusion. Before the throne of God above, second stanza. 
When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I look up and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, his son, Jesus, and pardon me. Let's pray. Father, may we be those who find ourselves in the midst of the temptation to despair when Satan is bringing his accusations against us to think back to all that you have done for us in Christ, to think of all that you have done in the death of Jesus, to see the fulfillment of this incredibly mysterious passage in Leviticus 16, to see that Jesus is all that sacrifice is intended to be, that he's fully borne our sins away. Far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us in your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to come now to the Lord's table. And as we come, I want us to come in light of all the things that have been said. Uh, the Lord's table is designed by God to communicate to us again and again the glorious salvation that God has given us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we hear these words and we pray that we might heed these words, that we would come to the Lord's table this morning uh, fully in faith, uh, fully in the manner that we are called to when we celebrate what you have done for us in your Son. We ask, Almighty God, that you would be gracious to us and be with us, watch over us and keep us, and enable us this day, Lord, uh, to once again renew our covenant, the covenant that you've granted to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The table of the Lord is not specifically the table of any particular church, but it's the table of the church. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He instituted it. And he instituted it in light of the new covenant so that this table would represent signs and seals of his covenant. The bread representing his body that was broken, 
fruit of the vine representing the blood that was shed. So that even here, we have enacted for us in a visible way, a kind of ostensive teaching, that the, the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, absolutely indispensably necessary for us to have communion with God. This is why the table is called Holy Communion. It's a time in which we have fellowship with God. It's a table fellowship. It has all the symbology that we find in the Old Testament when having sacrificed, the, the Old Testament saints were able to, as it were, sit down and eat with God. That's what the table means. But it is for those who know the Lord. Uh, it is for those who have come to that point of spiritual realization where they've made a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is why we don't serve communion to children. We, it's, it's important that they come to the point where the faith of their parents is now the faith that they themselves know, articulate, and own for themselves so that they can say, yes, uh, what I see here represents the gospel of Jesus, and what I believe today is the gospel of Jesus unto my salvation. Uh, the Lord has set apart uh, the bread and the wine for the sake of edifying our faith. So let me pray once again and ask the Lord to keep working in us as we come to the table uh, the grace that he's provided to us in the gospel. Oh, holy God, we would ask that you would be gracious to us as we come to this table, knowing that this meal is symbolic, and yet knowing that there is a deep, deep reality in Christ leading to everlasting life in what the bread represents and what the fruit of the vine represents, so that as we eat, it's symbolic of our faith. As we drink, it's symbolic of our faith. And faith itself is a true taking in of Christ and all of his benefits so that in union with him, we're able to taste even now uh, the everlasting life that comes to us through him. And so we pray, Father, bless us as we come to the table, strengthen our faith, enable us to see the gospel here. In Jesus' name, amen.